This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the show. We hope you enjoyed last week's program where we took a look at the deep state. Yours truly is fascinated by the fact that while the deep state is a real thing, the definitions of it seem to be all over the map, which will definitely inhibit intelligent discussion of the topic. We got some good feedback on the program. Hope you enjoyed it and hope you will give us some feedback. And uh, again, we'll ask you to ask your friends what they know about it and share with us the benefit of that inquiry. We're truly fascinated by the fact that the term conspiracy theory has also, I would say, been co-opted and used as a synonym for crackpot notion, which it very definitely is not necessarily the same thing as, because there are real conspiracies out there. No, we're not talking about captured aliens at Area 51. No, we're not talking about an engine that runs on water. Perhaps I can do no better than refer you to our own archives, where we did a show on conspiracy. Uh, many years back, a book was written, which was an internet guide to theories, and the authors were, were quite clear on the fact that uh, they did not regard the term conspiracy theory as being synonymous with crackpot notion. We can't avoid citing the fact that in the last couple of weeks, uh, the repeal of Obamacare has done a pratfall. Turns out that just 17 days after unveiling their long-promised health care bill, Republicans in Congress had to withdraw it. Sounding off on this was Doyle McManus in the L.A. Times, who noted that Trump won the presidency boasting about his negotiating prowess, but said that, in this case, the president showed an appalling lack of interest in the bill's details. He reportedly told Freedom Caucus holdouts, forget about the little stuff. Well, he didn't say stuff. And uh, he never sold a bill to the public. Notes that with Trump's approval ratings hovering at record lows and the bill itself polling horribly, he couldn't charm or bully Republican lawmakers into supporting it. They clearly fear their voters more than they fear him. I've heard some pretty good radio in the last week or two driving around. Michael Krasny's forum program had an interview with Jane Mayer in her new article about the hedged fund manager who was Donald Trump's biggest financial supporter. We'll have to talk about that in the future, but not today. During that chat, mention was made of the fact that although Trump ran against Goldman Sachs during the campaign, his administration appears to be absolutely chock-a-block with people from Goldman Sachs, including Steve Bannon, who has been quietly withdrawn from the National Security Council after people complained about the fact that the president's political advisor had no business being on the National Security Council. With Bannon and all these Goldman people hanging around, uh, Mayor, I think it was, referred to uh, the whole episode as a great, great bait-and-switch. By the, by the way, it was Bannon who co-wrote Trump's startlingly aggressive inauguration speech. And for our quote of the program, we're going to cite former President George W. Bush's reaction, heard by three different people after Trump delivered the speech, which was, that was some weird stuff. Only W did not use the word stuff either. And for our quip of the day, let's go to something said by another former president of the United States. We've used it before, but it's so good, we're going to use it again. Although it's not an exact quote, but Lyndon Johnson, the 36th president, once said, 
Money is like cow manure. You pile it up in one place and it stinks like hell. But if you spread it around, it can do quite a bit of good. And in the original, LBJ did not use the word manure, just FYI. But it's our intention to stay on the right side of the FCC. We definitely need some good news. We like to have regular segments. Uh, we like to have regular insertions of good news, quote unquote, in the program. And one we're going to use, or maybe it's reused. I don't know whether we used this many months ago. But the fact of the matter is, it appears that the ozone hole over Antarctica apparently is finally starting to heal. We have a piece in Discover magazine, which went to go interview climate scientist Susan Solomon of MIT. Her research back in 1986 first showed that there was a hole, and her findings paved the way for the 1989 Montreal Protocol, which banned the worst ozone-depleting chemicals such as chlorofluorocarbons. Now, we're not out of the woods, by the way. It's going to take till the middle of the 21st century for that hole to heal up. But, um, you know, it looks like we're on our way. Thank God. And in some other excellent news, it turns out that fewer Americans are dying of cancer now. Since reaching an all-time high in 1991, the U.S. death rate from all forms of cancer have dropped 25%, according to a recent report from the American Cancer Society. Cancer cases have steadily declined at a rate of about 1.5% per year, which researchers are attributing to reductions in smoking rates, improvements in early detection and treatment, and greater access to health care. Had cancer death rates remained unchanged for the past quarter century, about 2 million more people would have died from the disease. Or more correctly, diseases, for cancer is many, many different diseases. And we would note that while early detection is very important, there is a bit of bad news associated with this. Re- new research has cast doubt on the value of mammograms, according to NBCNews.com. A Danish study compared two groups of women aged 50 to 69 who had undergone the imaging scans to other women who had not been screened. To their surprise, the researchers found no difference in the number of advanced stage breast cancer diagnoses between the two groups. Moreover, among the screened women, one in three breast cancers was classified as an overdiagnosis that resulted in unnecessary treatments such as radiation, surgery, and chemotherapy. Now, the ideal solution to this is not to just forego breast cancer screening, but uh, it is argued that physicians need better genetic tests to help them identify dangerous tumors. On a personal note, I'd like to add that uh, a friend of mine, let's say he's a, a male in his 50s, called me a couple months ago to ask some, for some medical advice. He'd been urinating frank blood a couple of times in the last year or so and thought that was... Um, rather alarming. I agreed. But because he had no other symptoms associated with it, it was hard to attribute to one of the common things one might see in an urgent care. I urged him to immediately go to his doctor and have a urologist do a thorough examination. He followed that advice, and when his doctor did an ultrasound, he looked at him and said, you have kidney cancer. It should be noted that this is an individual who is in exceptionally good health and has taken excellent care of himself his whole life long. I told him I'd be happy to go with him when he got his CT results, which I did earlier this week, and it confirmed the diagnosis. Luckily for him, it appears not to have spread anywhere, and there's an excellent chance that with surgery he will have a complete recovery. It's a reminder to all of us that if a weird symptom comes along, get it checked out. 
By the way, when the initial discovery was made, he did not have health insurance, but evidently, thanks to Obamacare, he was able to obtain it in the meantime and will be able to get treated at a sophisticated facility. The key here, he was still able to get insurance even though he had a pre-existing condition. For our anecdote of the week, and by the way, we are deeply indebted to The Week magazine for much of today's program, but according to The Week, which we're going to use for our anecdote, a Nova Scotia driver has been told he cannot use a vanity license plate bearing his surname, which happens to be Grabber, because it was deemed socially unacceptable. Lauren Grabber originally had the plate made for his father in 1991, but the Registry of Motor Vehicles informed him the plate would be revoked because it sounds like Grab Her. Grabber has challenged the ruling. He said, my father always instilled in us that we should be very proud of our name. We believe that although he was in Nova Scotia, Mr. Grabber might have had an equal amount of trouble here in Donald Trump's America with that vanity plate. Our stat of the day, at least stat number one of the day, is as follows. Since the end of World War II, the U.S. has tried to influence elections in, well, according to this statistic, 45 other countries. That's according to research by political science Dove Levin of Carnegie Mellon University. The efforts have included the CIA running the presidential campaigns, leaking damaging information, and delivering large sums of cash to pay for one candidate or party. I'm currently reading an excellent book from the 1980s, A Bright Shining Lie, John Paul Van and America in Vietnam by Neil Sheehan. It's something of a classic and certainly does outline within it some of the antics involved in picking presidents. Mr. Sheehan cited the now legendary figure of Edward Lansdale, who basically set up two presidents in Southeast Asia, that of the Philippines and that of Vietnam. And yes, Ed Lansdale was working for the CIA. The book is so good, we expect to read from it at length in future programs. This provides a nice segue to an article from January 20th I'm sitting on. Actually, not an article, a little blurb. This also comes from a previous issue of The Week, reprinted from The Daily Mirror, article by Lysanda Kuruk Olasuria, with the headline, Is USAID just a front for the CIA? Well, if you read Mr. Sheehan's book, you'll find the answer to that out. The author says that the Sri Lankan government has invited the CIA to remake our democratic structure. That's the conclusion we can draw from the news that a $13.7 million USAID program for democracy and accountability here is to be implemented by the private U.S. company Development Alternatives, DAI, widely believed to be a CIA front. Article notes that Venezuela's socialist government has accused the Maryland-based firm of undermining its authority by overtly helping the opposition. Analysts who have studied Venezuela and other countries have concluded that the CIA subverts governments, quote, on the pretext of promoting democracy, unquote. To which we would add, duh. Our stat number two of the day is six, as in the age of six. American kids used to start kindergarten at five years of age. I did, but a Stanford study has now found that today, about 20% of kindergartners are six. Much of that change is attributed to the redshirting of the children. 
competitive parents holding their kids back a year to give them an academic and physical advantage over their younger peers. And yes, we think it's disgusting too. At this point, let's take a run at the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the current issue of The Week magazine, it was a good week this week for premature celebrations after TV ads congratulating Republican lawmakers for successfully replacing Obamacare aired in several states the same day that Paul Ryan pulled the bill from the House floor. The ads urged voters to thank the representatives for keeping their promises and providing the better health care you deserve. And... Conversely, it was a bad week last week for Donny Lads, after officials in Scotland revealed that just seven boys born in the country last year were named Donald, the fewest on record. Naming experts say that the local unpopularity of President Donald Trump, whose mother was born in Scotland, is the main reason for the name's disfavor. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for Bill O'Reilly, after the Fox News host mocked U.S. Representative Maxine Waters, sorry, <laughs> saying she appeared to be wearing a James Brown wig. Oh! O'Reilly later apologized, calling his comments dumb. Well, yes. And speaking of Bill O'Reilly, we were appalled to note that The Week magazine had a full-page ad in it for a book purportedly written by Bill O'Reilly, well, Bill O'Reilly and Bruce Firestein, titled Old School, Life in the Sane Lane. The ad says, it's time to take a stand. Are you old school or a snowflake? Do you show up on time, work hard, decide how to climb the mountain each day? You're old school. Or do you whine and tweet about safe spaces and trigger warnings? You are drifting precipitation. Which side are you on? Chris, I have to note with some sadness that... <laughs> We've been ragging on safe spaces and trigger warnings on this program for some time. But we are supremely confident that this book, like everything else attributed to Bill O'Reilly, will be a pile of manure, simply because Bill O'Reilly never seems to get his facts straight. He doesn't seem to take an inordinate interest in the opposite sex, however, and reportedly his program has lost something like eight or nine sponsors now with um, the spate of allegations that Bill O'Reilly has been a serial practitioner of sexual harassment. Someone even labeled him Fox's answer to Bill Cosby. And finally, we'd have to say it was both a bad and ugly week last week for government spokesmen. With this item, a malnourished elephant at a Caracas Zoo, we just spoke about Venezuela a moment ago, has become a powerful symbol of economic hardship in that South American country, which was once one of the wealthiest nations south of the border. After photos of Ruperta, the elephant at the zoo, went viral, her ribs were showing through her sagging skin, Venezuelans launched a food drive for the starving beast. But when people brought food to the Carisual Zoo, they were turned away by officials who cited sanitary concerns. The country's leftist government denies that 46-year-old Ruperta was going hungry, saying instead she lost weight because of a stomach flu. The plight of the elephant apparently has resonated with recession-wary Venezuelans, many of whom skip meals because they can't afford basic produce. All right, let's do some follow-up. We mentioned in last week's program we want to 
at some point cite the saga of the Oakland, Ra- the Oakland Raiders. We just had to laugh in the article in the San Jose Mercury News by Daniel Brown, where Mark Davis said that he was sad <laughs> and apparently frustrated in the wake of his uh, move to Las Vegas. Davis reportedly said, I'm not celebrating anything like I would like to be. Yes, we bet he is going to be crying all the way to the bank. This scam that uh, sports team owners play on municipalities to get them to build stadiums for them is just uh, just disgusting. <laughs> Most recently here in Sacramento. But the San Francisco Chronicle listed just, you know, a partial summary of, of the great Raiders saga over the decades, and I thought it'd be worth just reviewing a little bit of it. I had not realized that the Raiders played their first two seasons in San Francisco. In September of 1962, they moved to Frank Ewell Field, a temporary 20,000-seat stadium near downtown Oakland. Old-timers like myself will no doubt recall driving up the Nimitz Freeway and making that big left-hand turn and seeing home of the Oakland Raiders emblazoned upon Frank Ewell Field. By September of 1966, the Oakland Raiders were playing in New Digs, the Oakland Coliseum where they had quite a bit of success as a sports franchise, but not so much that by January 1980, they weren't looking to move. In January of that year, the L.A. Coliseum Commission announced that owner Al Davis, despite pleas from Oakland fans, had agreed to move the Raiders to L.A. The NFL owners tried to block the move, but Davis sued and eventually won a landmark court case which cleared the way for his move to Los Angeles. September of 1982, the Raiders began playing in the L.A. Coliseum. Here's Chile was attending medical school in Southern California about that time and had to note that they never broadcast any L.A. Raider games on local television, at least not when they were playing at home, because they could almost never fill up the L.A. Coliseum. This no doubt contributed somewhat to their financial woes, plus the fact that the L.A. Coliseum was not going to build the luxury boxes that uh, these owners are so fond of. So in March of 1990... Davis conditionally agreed to move the Raiders back to Oakland. In September of that same year, L.A. Mayor Tom Bradley announced the signing of a deal to keep the Raiders in Los Angeles for an additional 20 years. We shouldn't leave out the fact that three years earlier, in August of 1987, Al Davis signed an agreement with Irwindale to move the team there. That never happened, but Davis and the Raiders got to keep Irwindale's $10 million. Sound familiar? And the next year, in 1989, Sacramento was trying to vie with Oakland as a suitor for the Raiders. Despite of their 20-year commitment to Tom Bradley in 1990, the Raiders, in fact, left Los Angeles in June of 1995 and moved back to the Oakland Coliseum. They were enticed by cheap rent and a major renovation to the Coliseum, financed by a $225 million public bond. That money helped pay for the construction of Mount Davis, a large seating structure that taxpayers are still paying for. By the way, they still owe $83 million on it. Anyway, the Raiders apparently bamboozled people down in Las Vegas to build them a new luxury stadium, which they will be occupying in three years. It's going to be great to be a Raider fan the next two years, don't you think? Then again, coming from a family that for decades were diehard 49er fans, I would have to say that the abuse heaped upon us by the uh, Raider Nation when they were riding high and the Niners were riding low, leads me to say, well, it couldn't happen to a nicer bunch of fans. And I apologize to all you cool Raider fans out there, because there are a few of you. And in some happier news from the world of competition, we would like to plug something that goes on every year over in Hawaii. 
It's evidently being held every Easter weekend in Hilo. And uh, it is the Merry Monarch Hula Festival, a fiercely competitive celebration of a 1,600-year-old tradition. I chanced to be in Hawaii several years back um, when they were holding the Merry Monarch Festival. It was being broadcast, and I, I got to say, it was a sight to behold. There was a heck of a lot of uh, innovation and artistry that went into this, uh, the art of the hula, and, uh, well, I just, I just highly recommend it. It's cool to see such a modern revival of a, of a, of a marvelous ancient tradition. We're not going to get into the fact that Jerry Brown wants to raise taxes on all of us so they can repair the highways in California. Repairing the highways in California is a pretty good idea. Our highways are in crappy shape. But since Caltrans has been out there working on the highways for the past several years, causing massive traffic jams that you undoubtedly have had to drive around, dear listener, you have to wonder, are these the people we want to give boatloads of money to to continue doing the work they've been doing so far? I got my doubts. The editors in the B apparently have doubts, too. They know that the taxes that will be raised annually for this program um, will be kept in check with the consumer price indexes. They know that that might make a certain amount of sense if there were opportunities for future voters or legislative review, but there aren't any. It's a permanent tax hike with permanent annual cost of living increases and no end in sight. Jerry Brown also proposes that we come up with $400 million to aid the Salton Sea. Well, if there's any part of California that needs aid, it would be the Salton Sea. On the other hand, there's a certain triage involved in this. I mean, you understand the triage concept. When you're brought people to get medical aid, some of them are going to die no matter what you do, and you don't spend a lot of energy on them. Some of them are going to live, so you don't concentrate on them. You concentrate on the ones that your actions are the difference between life and death with on the battlefield. And we have to say, the Salton Sea looks like a goner. It's hard to believe that as recently as the 1970s, the Salton Sea drew more visitors than Yosemite National Park. It is currently a fetid sinkhole filled with agricultural waste and sewage and is drying up every year because, well, given the current climate of Southern California, more water evaporates every year than goes into the lake, which was created by accident back in something like 1908, when efforts to temporarily divert the Colorado River went wrong and the river flowed out in the desert for like a year and a half. Now, in the long term, there has been a lake where there's a Salton Sea, an even much larger lake that would have engulfed even present-day Palm Springs, and that was as recently as like something like 500 years ago with different climactic conditions, but given that the world is getting warmer and California's probably going to get drier, it just ain't looking good. If you have any ideas on the Salton Sea, by all means, share those with us here at Radio Parallax. Drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And there's this, (laughs) pointed out to me by a friend that said, did you see what was in the Week magazine this week? It was exactly what you were saying. I said, thanks. You can bet it will make this week's program. The item comes from Health Scare of the Week in the week. The headline is, GPS turns off brain, (laughs) to quote from it. Relying too much on your GPS could deactivate parts of the brain, a new study suggests. Neuroscientists at the University College in London scanned the brains of 24 people as they navigated simulations of the British capital. Sometimes they had to find their own way, and sometimes they were given turn-by-turn directions similar to those offered by sat-nav systems. 
Activity in the hippocampus, the brain region involved in memory and spatial mapping, increased when participants navigated by themselves. It also stimulated their prefrontal cortex, which is involved in planning and decision-making. But when participants were given GPS-like directions, brain activity in these regions switched off, reports Scientific American. They noted this shift could free up mental resources for other tasks, but researchers note that over time the brain's ability to navigate could suffer. If you think of the brain as a muscle, said study leader Hugo Spires, then certain activities like learning maps of London streets are like bodybuilding. We think this is probably a good analogy. Although I have to admit, when you're in a bind and you're lost, if you can rely upon your phone to pull up some satellite navigation, it can be a real boon. On the other hand, we have what was probably the single funniest moment from my trip to Croatia last year. We were attempting to drive, we were attempting to drive from Dubrovnik to Mostar in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and I was quite confident we would find our way without incident. My friend Gordon, however, insisted upon turning on his phone's navigation system. And, exact, and at exactly the right moment on the road, it said turn right, when I would have preferred to have gone straight. As we embarked upon what got to be a smaller and smaller, seemingly almost country road, I kept saying, this can't be right. Gordon said, it's been right so far. After driving a couple of miles, we pulled up into what looked to be a border crossing, except we were the only car there. There appeared to be nobody manning the post. A door then opened and a sad-eyed gentleman in a uniform strolled out to the car, looked at us and said, let me guess. GPS. This was apparently an area that locals could use to get from Dubrovnik back into Bosnia, but was not something they intended the international public to be utilizing. I do want to say conversely that when you're driving around, say, Plovdiv, Bulgaria, looking for an Airbnb and you don't have a map, those turn right here, turn left here instructions can be pretty damn useful. But I would say in closing, whenever possible, use your brain, not your GPS. And finally, we had a lot of fun a couple weeks back with Kyle Larson taking a look at the music of Chuck Berry. But I realized now that there was one of my favorite uh, Chuck Berry tunes we completely missed, which pretty much opens the door for the bumper music we're going to use to close this segment. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. You know, I'm almost grown. Yeah, and I'm doing all right in school. They ain't said I broke no rules. I ain't never been in Dutch I don't browse around 